Last week, uh, we looked at the first 13 verses of chapter 11, which was our Lord's longest teaching, at least to this point in Luke's gospel, on the subject of prayer. And we move this morning into yet another miraculous exorcism of a demon. And sometimes when you move from Last week's text to this text, people wonder what is the relationship between the two because it seems quite of a jarring transition. But do let us remember that Christ came in this Gospel of Luke. He continues to emphasize it. He came to inaugurate His kingdom. And do you remember the second petition of the Lord's Prayer we looked at last week? Your kingdom come. And so this morning as we read our text, which is a long one, verses 14 through 36, I want you to notice as I read it, what it tells unto us about the coming kingdom that Christ brings. Then once I've read it, I want to pray for our time and study of it, and then we will begin. So let us hear now as God's Spirit speaks to us through the Word. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking for him a sign from heaven. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman and the crowd raised their voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body, and when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. So therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. 
if then your whole body is full of light, have no parting, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when the lamp with its rays gives you light. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together once again. Father, we thank you that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That your word lasts forever. That through it you speak unto us the gospel of your Son. That through it we see who your Son, Jesus Christ, is. What he came to do. And how we might be welcomed into your kingdom. And so we pray this morning that you would indeed welcome us to the feast, the wedding banquet of your Son, that those in here this morning that do not know Jesus Christ might fall down on their knees in faith before you, that you would edify us who are in Christ, your children of God this morning, nourished once again by the truth that's found in Jesus Christ. So help us to hear with hearts of expectation, thanksgiving, minds of gladness. Help me to preach as your word says I must. Boldly and clearly as a dying man unto dying people. And help us to hear as if this might be the last sermon, the last word that we hear from you. Give us understanding, we pray, by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most captivating stories in Texas history throughout the generations has been the battle of the Alamo. I'm sure that many of you know it relatively well. That day in 1836 when Santa Ana's forces of 2,400 Mexican soldiers surrounded a stone garrison with only 200 soldiers present in it. The Mexican army promised no quarter to these Texan troops, meaning they were going to show no mercy. Food was in short supply. Water was running out. It was about as worse as you could possibly imagine for this garrison there at the Alamo. And legend has it that Colonel William Travis, the leader of the Texan troops, pulled out his army saber from its sheath and drew a line in the sand, saying, who is going to remain to fight out of the 186 soldiers present? Who is on my side? And today we come to a text that reminds us that as Christ brings the kingdom, it is little more than a declaration of spiritual warfare on Satan's kingdom. And what our text is going to do, in ways I hope we shall soon see, is take the spiritual sword of God's word and draw a line in the sand and ask the question, whose side are you on? Which kingdom do you live in? In which power are you trusting? So as I'm sure you noticed as we read the text just a few minutes ago, it's a long passage that's before us this morning. Uh, You might notice if you glance down at it once again that it comes in five distinct sections. It appears to be one afternoon in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And you might wonder, why would we take such a large passage in one setting? And the reason why is, is because Jesus is dealing in this long passage with two responses to his casting out of a demon. So look again at verse 15 and 16. He has cast out this mute man. The people are marveling, and we're told that some people said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So that's line of conflict number one. 
Line of conflict number two in verse 16, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So those are the two lines of thought that we want to give our attention to this morning. The first is the leader's denunciation of Jesus as being little more than a Satan-inspired exorcist. Conflict with the king is what we want to consider in that part. And secondly, conflict with the prophet as the Jewish crowds that were taking in that miracle, they wanted a sign from heaven. They demanded some sort of heavenly authentication of Jesus' identity. So we just want to walk through this text with Jesus' responses to the denunciation and the demand. Conflict with the king and conflict with the prophet. And what we're going to see, for it lies, of course, at the center even of our text, is the good news Once again, we have heard this common refrain and chorus over Luke's gospel is that true members of Christ's kingdom are those who hear his word in faith and repentance. True members, true kingdom disciples are those who repent at the word of Jesus Christ. And so the first line of conflict is conflict with the king. If you look again at verse 14 and 15, you'll see as the text follows that it seems like Luke doesn't care too much about the casting out of the demon as much as what happened as a result of that demon being cast out. We know from the parallel passages in Mark chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 12 that the people that are denouncing Jesus' display of power, because of course they can't deny it, it's in front of them for all the crowd to see, but they can denounce it. Uh, These are religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, that are denouncing Jesus by saying that he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So, kids, I wonder if you've heard the name Beelzebul before. That's surely not one that you use in everyday discourse, but it's one that the Jews used often in everyday discourse. It literally means Lord of the Flies, or more pertinent to the passage in 2 Kings chapter 1 when it shows up in reference to the pagan king of Ekron, king of the dung heap. And by the time of Jesus... It was normally used in reference to an archdemon of hell or to Satan himself. And so these leaders are quick, aren't they, in their own hatred, in their own bitterness, dare we say even jealousy of Jesus Christ, to denounce his ministry as being little more than just a tool of Satan. And so what Jesus does as the passage continues is refute their argument. So that's the accusation. He is a demon-inspired exorcist. And now he's going to give a threefold and maybe even fourfold refutation of their claim. And the first few ways he argues against it is plain, simple logic. Look at verse 17 and 18. He knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now students, I hope that you appreciate and even value clear and careful logic. And if you do, you'll profit much from the teachings of Jesus. Because do you see the simple, sane logic he's making here to his opponents? You are saying that I'm casting out demons by a demonic power. That Satan is warring against Satan. And that is utterly absurd. Why would Satan want to tear down his own kingdom? Just the simple logic of the argument shows how 
much it falls short. But he's not done even, he's showing their illogical accusation, but even the inconsistency of the accusation. Look at verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? It was common at this time, whenever a demon was cast out in Jewish culture, that people took it ordinarily, almost automatically, as a sign that God was working through that exorcist. It was a good thing to praise God for, that one had been freed from the bondage and captivity of a demon. And he says, seemingly, you are rejoicing in the previous exorcisms of your sons, is the phrase he uses. That could be a reference to Jewish exorcists at that time in that culture. I actually think what he's referring to there is his 12 disciples and the 72 that he sent out on previous missions who were sons of the Jews that much of their ministry was involved in, if you flip back to previous chapters, the casting out of demons. And so seemingly and understandably, the crowds are rejoicing in his followers casting out of demons, giving praise to God, marveling for that majestic work of the Father, and they're so quick to say Jesus is just a satanic tool in the hand of Beelzebub. So therefore, notice verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 19, therefore they will be your judges. It's an often misunderstood or undervalued truth of Scripture. We find often in the New Testament that the disciples of Jesus Christ will participate in the final judgment. And what he's saying here is, you're illogical in your argument. You're inconsistent in your argument. And for such bitterness, hatred, and jealousy, your sons, my disciples, my followers will in fact stand in judgment for your lack of repentance and faith before me. And so Jesus, as you ought to expect him to be, he's a, he's a very good prosecuting attorney. He is a difficult one to debate with because he's not done with his line of evidence yet. He's going to now give two different parables to further show what needs to be seen in the casting out of this demon. If you just scan your eyes through verse 21 through 22, you'll see first the parable of the deliverer. So Jesus says that a strong man is able in his own power to protect the goods of his house only until a stronger man comes along and plunders his house and ransacks those goods. And taken in context, he of course means that Satan and his kingdom has taken captive and chained people to sin and iniquity in his domain of darkness. But no longer does he have power over this earth, as Ephesians 2 says, the prince of the power of the air. Because Jesus has come. Satan, kids, you need to know this. Jesus is saying Satan is very strong. But the good news is that Jesus is the strong man. He is stronger. He's able to liberate the captives in Satan's kingdom. That yes, you should stand wisely and carefully, maybe even fearfully at times before Satan's schemes and temptations. But you can stand confidently, though, and strongly in Christ because he is the stronger man. And it's on display for the entire crowd to see as this demon who was mute is driven out at a simple command of Christ. So that's the parable of the deliverer. More mysterious now, though, is what follows in verse 24 through 26, the parable we might call of the destroyer. The parable of the destroyer. Look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Verse 25, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. 
So many scholars and commentators have developed from this text interesting comments related to demonology, saying that when a demon is cast out, they just kind of tend to go through desert places. In that first century culture, that's where they tended to associate demonic habitations with, these arid, waterless desert places. But if you flipped over to Matthew chapter 12, the parallel text, you see that Jesus is directing this parable of the destroyer to an evil generation, the Jews that are listening to him, he says. And what he is essentially saying is, is that Satan has now been cast out. We've seen that in previous chapters of, of Luke, that Satan has been cast down from heaven in the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ, that the strong man has been bound up. But it does leave a spiritual vacuum of sorts in the hearts of this generation. And if it is not full of Christ, filled up with faith and repentance in Christ, you see what Jesus says will happen as a result in verse 26? This spirit will go and bring seven others, more evil than itself. They will enter the house, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. He is reminding us that there is no spiritual vacuum in which our souls live in this world. That's why even J.C. Ryle comments at this point. He says, the main lesson of Christ's words, which concern us, is the danger of our own individual souls. They are a solemn warning to us never to be satisfied with religious reformation without heart conversion. You may have read the Gospels enough to know that that tends to be what gets the Jewish people excited. Moral reform without the revolution of a new heart by the Spirit of God. And if that happens, simple moral reform, self-reformation, Jesus is warning them that what will happen after the fact is an even worse oppression than what was before. So rejoice not in the mere casting out of a demon. Rejoice in the one that is alone able to fill that vacuum in your heart with gladness love, forgiveness, and joy. And of course, Luke doesn't tell us how the people respond, but he does tell us how a woman responds. Just one woman. We want to ask the question maybe, okay, so if the casting out of a demon isn't the thing on which we're supposed to focus our attention, isn't the thing that's supposed to captivate us what's supposed to captivate us? and receive our attention. Look at verse 27 and 28. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. That's understandable what she says, right? Jesus, you're amazing. How amazing and marvelous must be your mother. Not an unusual thing to say in that culture that so valued family. But you see that Jesus once again inverts the expectation of that generation. He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's the continual chorus of Luke's gospel. I hope you have noticed. True blessing does not come through kinship, physical relationships, but a spiritual service through the word. True blessing comes by hearing the word of Jesus Christ and keeping it. In focusing on the demonstration of Christ's power, they have not even heard the declaration of his person in this conflict with the king. So I hope we can all say that Jesus has effectively laid aside this first response, that he's just a satanic-inspired exorcist. 
with lines of showing how illogical their accusation was, inconsistent in these two parables, and even the response of the woman, he's reminded us that true members of Christ's kingdom are those who hear his word and not simply marvel at his works. But then there's a second line of conflict that we saw in verse 16. What about the rest of the crowd? Not just the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. What about the crowd who wants a sign? One of the more famous artists and illustrators of the late 19th century was a Frenchman named Paul Gustave Doré. Once he was traveling throughout Europe and he had lost his passport along the way and so he came to a border crossing into a new European country and they said, hey, where's your passport? And he said, well, you know, I've lost it but I'm, I'm Doré, the famous artist and illustrator. Just let me into the country. And the border crossing guard wisely said, well, we get many impersonators of other people trying to come into our country so you're going to have to prove it. So he reaches out from under the desk, slides a sheet of paper with a pencil across the table and says to Doré, prove that you are Doré. And in a real sense, that's what the crowd wants of Jesus right now. Prove it. But it's ironic, isn't it, that that's what they want. Jesus just cast out a demon, showed that his kingdom is greater than Satan's kingdom, and they say, that's not enough. Give us something better. Give us something more powerful than that. And what you want to know that the Bible shows us over and over that the Jewish people innately, according to Scripture, desired signs. You can find it in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Gideon. God calls him to be a judge, to conquer Israel's enemies. But he wants signs before he's going to go do it with confidence. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, the Apostle Paul says, Jews demand a sign. Greeks demand wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's the sign. That's exactly what Jesus says as the passage continues, because notice what he says in verse 29. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So kids, I hope you remember the story of Jonah. God wanted him to do what? Go preach repentance to the Ninevites, this pagan capital of the Assyrian Empire. Jonah doesn't want to do it. So what does he do? He gets down in a boat, tries to flee God's call and commission on his life, and so what subsequently happens? The sailors throw him over the side of the boat, and who eats him up but a big old fish? And in the fish he stays for three days and three nights before he spit out to actually go preach repentance. And he preaches repentance, and the Ninevites, revival breaks out in their city. Mass conversion because of Jonah's preaching. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says that is the sign that this generation is going to get, the sign of Jonah. That just as he was three days and nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three nights in the earth. What's the sign that they are going to get? It's his resurrection. What is the sign subsequently that he has given to the world? The preaching of a crucified, buried, and resurrected Christ. Maybe you've tried to counsel a friend or a co-worker or a neighbor on the truths of Christianity, the goodness of Jesus Christ, and maybe the response has been something to the effect of, well, you know, I'll believe if, if I just receive this demonstration of God's power. Or if he heals my sickness, then I will trust in him. And what you must remember on the authority of this text and the entirety of God's word is that God has given you a sign. 
It's only one place he has promised to show you who he is, which is in the preaching of his son. And so to further warn the crowd in their lust for signs, Jesus calls on two Old Testament examples. What were proper responses that this generation is going to fail even to do? First is the queen's response. Look at verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You might remember that story in the life of King Solomon. This great and and powerful and even beautiful African king, queen, came up to see Solomon. She had heard of his wisdom, his riches, the glory of his kingdom. She wanted to behold it with her own eyes. And she held it fast in faith. And then you get the Ninevites' response. Notice verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up here at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So students, do you again again see the logic of Jesus to this evil generation that demands a sign in order that they might repent? He says that the queen of Sheba came, and she believed in Solomon. And someone greater than Solomon is standing before you. That the Ninevites, this pagan people, repented in mass at the preaching of Jonah. And someone greater than Jonah is speaking to you. And you're not hearing it. It's a warning that's given, don't you see, to a religious people. Desiring signs for their spirituality. Do you not know that people so often crowd around Jesus but never actually close with him in faith and repentance? Such is the case of of this crowd. They do not close with Jesus Christ. And so at the judgment for their lack of repentance, Jesus says that others who have responded appropriately will rise up and condemn them for their rejection of Jesus Christ. A stern warning, isn't it, in this conflict with the prophet? In the second volume of Gerald Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series, The Two Towers, some of you may know from the movies or if you've read the story that Gandalf, this great good wizard, was believed to be and have been dead. And then he comes suddenly back Actually, after a while, he comes back and is shown to have not died, and he appears before his merry band of followers with, with brilliant light and, and speaks to them in ways that kind of confound their minds. And so the book tells us, and the movie says it too, that Aragorn, the good king Aragorn, leaned into Gandalf and said, I see that at least one thing hasn't changed about you. You still speak in riddles. And in a passage full of careful, clear logic, What remains for us in verse 33 through 36 is a passage that has confounded scholars. As Jesus continues his denunciation of the people's demand for a sign, he now goes into uh, a series and an extended commentary of the nature of light and darkness. Now what's the point? Well, look again at verse 33 and see if you might not figure it out. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. 
Again, if you read the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12, you get a little bit more help there. You see that Jesus understands himself to be the light. And what he's doing in this somewhat mysterious parable of light and darkness is he's telling us why it is that people denounce him and demand from him a sign. Why is it that they won't come to him in faith? Because you see the openness and the willingness of Christ that he is the light, that he shines the light into the world, into people's hearts. But the problem is what? They can't see it spiritually. Look at how the text continues, verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body, and when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, here's the warning, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Maybe you've experienced this before, even in your life. Been devoted to the church of Jesus Christ. Been regular in your reading of Scripture, praying unto God. Feeling as though you had a grasp upon the light of Jesus Christ. But as the world presses in around you and the cares of this world begin to strangle you, you realize that actually what is in you is not light at all. It's just still unrepentant darkness and you can't see the truth of who Jesus is. But he means, doesn't he, to shine that light into the world? Look at verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part of darkness, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And so kind of piercing through what can confound many commentators is the words of of Jesus as revealed to Paul in Acts 26 when he says that he has commissioned his people to open the eyes of sinners that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Why is it that so many people do not receive Christ? Because their hearts and souls are dark in sin. Their eyes are dark, and they can't even take it in. What's necessary, once again, is not just moral reformation, beholding the truth without the eyes of faith. What's necessary is the work of the Spirit. He who is the light of the Son, to open your eyes that you might have a new heart and receive the truth of who Jesus is. You might hear that he is God's son who came to save sinners like you and me because those who are in his kingdom are those who hear his word and respond with faith and repentance. Some of you know that the nation of Switzerland has bowed out of many conflicts in the world over the last 200 years. It was in 1815 that they signed the Treaty of Paris in which they committed themselves to a policy of external security, a desire to promote peace in their nation. And so for over 200 years now, their military stance toward any battle or war has been one of neutrality. It's the longest running neutral stance in all of the world. And what I want you to see from our text as we begin to close is the simple warning of Jesus Christ that there is no neutrality in the world. There is no neutrality towards Christ. So as we begin to close, that's the first of three things I want you to meditate on as we begin to finish. There is no neutrality towards Christ. Skip back up to verse 23, this verse that we glanced over a minute ago. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And students, I want you to see the truth of this word from Christ, that there's no neutrality towards him, 
Some of you may soon be going to a university, college context, in which you will find professors and leaders and even other well-meaning students want to say this is precisely the opposite of what is actually true. But Jesus stands here today, and what he's doing through his word and with his spirit, he is drawing a line as ever deep as he can into that spiritual sand, saying that you are either one or the other. You're either part of my kingdom or Satan's kingdom. You are either light or darkness. You either receive my word or reject it. Mere indifference to Christ has never saved anyone. Simple detachment or diffidence towards Christ has never delivered anyone from their sin. He is warning the people who seem to want to marvel at his works but not respond to him in faith and repentance and he's saying you don't realize that there's no neutrality. If you are not for me, you are against me. And the second thing the text wants us to see is the true identity of Christ. That's the point of the signs we keep seeing in Luke's gospel. Demonstrations of his power declarations of his person, all meant to show us who he actually is. So kids, think about that question. Children, even talk about it with your parents over lunch today. Who is Jesus? Is he, like so many people in the world might say, a powerful healer, a good teacher, a wise prophet? Or is he the eternal son of God that took on flesh to live the perfect life that you should have lived to die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for sin, spilling his blood that you might be cleansed from all unrighteousness, going into the grave, this sign of Jonah, coming again three days later that you might know deliverance from sin, being rescued from Satan's kingdom and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You're meant to see the true identity of Jesus Christ. Remember that there's no neutrality towards Jesus. But again, Luke is calling us thirdly and finally submit to the authority of Christ. To submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? By hearing and keeping his word. In the midst of all of these miracles, healings, exorcisms of demons, displays of his mighty, majestic kingdom power, do you not find it fascinating that Jesus keeps poking and prodding our attention, making us remember that it is those who hear his word and keep it that are truly blessed. It is those who submit to the authority of his word that according to verse 36, shine wholly bright, that are radiant with the glory of the sun. So the kingdoms are in war as the gospel of Luke continues. These kingdoms are in conflict. And what good news it is for us that Satan's kingdom is crumbling before our very eyes as Jesus advances in his life and ministry. For as the religious leaders think that Satan's kingdom is crumbling from the inside, it actually is quite true that Jesus' kingdom, I'm sorry, Satan's kingdom is crumbling from the outside. For the true king of kings has arrived. And he means to bring people into that kingdom. People who hear his word and respond with genuine repentance. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for your help. For a fullness of the Spirit sent unto us that we might indeed behold the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, in your word, that we are so often prone to wander, prone to focus on secondary matters, 
tertiary matters that we forget the matters of first importance. That your son is the savior for sinners such as us. And to come to him in faith and repentance is to be welcomed into the kingdom that knows no end. So we do pray this day that we would rejoice in Christ our King. That we would renew our faith in him. And revel even in the power that he has shown unto us as he has conquered sin, Satan, and death. And may this sign of gospel preaching of a resurrected Christ guide us and lead us unto your eternal kingdom. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.